manage the Duffy schedule. It was last night in Murraysville doing a presentation. Got another one tonight down in the same area. Uh, seen it advertised in youth sites for the last few weeks, and all of a sudden I realized, no wonder he's so busy. He's doing both ends. Spoken here this morning, obviously this afternoon, and then headed out at 3 o'clock on the button so that he can head down that way and then go back to Eastern College so he can teach at 8.30 in the morning. Man, am I glad I'm off tomorrow. I'm tired just thinking of your schedule. We're really honored that you're here today. Uh, we know that you're busy and so are we and a lot going on in your life, but we're honored that you're taking the time to do this and know that you're in the middle of that transitional period or right beginning it or wherever you're at. So you need as much insight as you can. This is the absolute best uh, speaker on that area that I've ever been around, and I've been doing this for 40 years, and he is the best. So we're delighted that we have him here today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and love. For all you've provided, couldn't thank you enough for this morning's message to all of us from you and how you used him. I pray that Duffy will be able to sense your power and your anointing here this afternoon, giving us insights and uh, suggestions and encouragement and uh, fortitude to be able to get through the other side and know that we've done the best we can in our combination with you to raise the children that you want us to. Pray that you'll continue to be with him in his travel schedule and tonight and tomorrow morning that you will use him in marvelous ways, Father, as you've already had. We pray that today is a day where we really know this is really good to be here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Duffy Robbins. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> thank you both of you. <laughs> right, right. Uh, sound like uh, fish in a deep fat fryer. Uh, thank you very much. Kind of makes me hungry. Thanks so much for coming this afternoon. Seriously, I... Uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier this morning. It's such a gorgeous day, and, and, and I totally get it. Uh, football, yard work, uh, nap time, you name it. Uh, I, mean, I just was actually thinking as I was uh, contemplating this afternoon session, going, you know what? Uh, with all the stuff you could be doing, you're going to walk in here this afternoon, and you're thinking to yourself, this better be good. <laughs> so I want us to talk this afternoon about dealing with disappointment. Uh, no, it's not true. No, actually, I am, uh, no, I, I, I think it'll be a good afternoon. Um, now, uh, I'll be honest with you. It would, it would you just, did you notice where Pastor Denny was standing? He was standing about here because there's something primal in speakers that likes to get close to the audience. And yet there's something primal in audiences that likes to get away from the speaker. I understand this. I've been on both ends of the equation. But I actually uh, can't go that far forward uh, because I'd have to run about a mile between my computer and by the time. The, it would be help me a lot if you guys would be willing to come up this way a little bit this afternoon. If another thousand people come in, we'll have space for them in the back. Uh, but this is really thoughtful. Thank you for, so much. It's a, a radical gesture of Christian love that you would sit this close. I really appreciate it. You get, a, you get a star in your crown. And, and, and uh, you know what? If you, if you feel a little bit drowsy, a little bit dull, that's fine. I get it. Uh, if you stretch out on the floor. We didn't bring towels. Uh, but uh, you can just uh, relax. Relax. There you go. Thank you so very much. Now, I, I, I was here, um, I don't know, a few years ago. And, um, and, and if I have to separate this group, I will. But uh, just because I let you move forward doesn't mean that you can misbehave. Uh, when I was here a few years ago, um, I mentioned that this is true. You know, whenever you do a seminar on parents, 
teenagers, that kind of thing. Uh, one of the questions that people always ask is, do you yourself have any parents? So I like to start, or any children. I do have parents too, although my parents don't know I'm in youth ministry. They think I'm a lawyer. But uh, I just didn't have the heart to tell them. But, but uh, it, uh, I do have actually uh, two daughters, and I like to introduce uh, my girls to you, my family to you first uh, as we get started. This is, uh, well, you see, you're laughing a little bit, but this is actually uh, their confirmation party. We, I should explain, we go to an Episcopal church. Now, actually, uh, their mom doesn't like that picture so much. She prefers this one. Um, and uh, uh, this is my daughter, Erin, uh, the redhead. She's the one on the right. Uh, she and her husband and children live in Durham, North Carolina. Erin uh, is uh, going to be 40 years old in February. Uh, to Aaron's right and our left is Katie. You remember Katie from the merry-go-round? Uh, she is my younger daughter, and, uh, and, and she's actually going to be 38 in about two weeks. And it's funny because people look at my daughters, and they look at me, and they go... I'd like to see what your wife looks like. And, uh, yeah, uh, so actually, this is, uh, this is Maggie right there in the middle. I uh, married her 44 years ago. That was an awesome decision. And, uh, and she and I still live in, in Valley Forge. I have to say, though, as a preference, and I mentioned this last time I was here, but I, I just have to say this. This is not a seminar about how we did it all right. Please understand that. Uh, you know, I thought, being a, being a youth pastor, Evan, I thought, well, you know, when I have my own teenagers, this is going to be kind of a breeze because I've been around teenagers, and, 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 and how hard can this be? One of the things I learned is that uh, being a youth pastor is a little different uh, than being a, a, a parent of your own teenagers. And I, Like when you're a youth pastor, you know, kids give you trouble. If you have to, you can say, look, you guys are going to have to go home. Well, I tried that with my children. <laughs> And they didn't go anywhere, uh, you know. And they said, we live for us. All right, well, you're going to have to go to church. And so, so uh, yeah, it's, I, I know what it's like to, to face struggles and challenges as a parent, to go through this thing. I can still remember uh, the exasperation and the confusion and the wondering. You know, you, you, you know how, just to give you an example, you have those times when, you know how your children will ask you for permission to do something. And you're going, oh, my gosh, you know, what do, what, what do we say? Do we say yes? Do we say no? Do we say maybe? Do we say, honey, I think that's a felony? And, and uh, you know, you, you just wrestle with you. Well, well, we wrestle with those questions too, okay? So, so please understand that. This is not how we did it all right. These are, these are principles that I've learned in almost 40 years of youth ministry, but also uh, having gone through the crucible and the adventure uh, of parenting my own teenagers. Now, what I'd like to do is uh, kind of pick up where I left off when I did a seminar here a few years ago. You go, Duffy, I have no memory whatsoever of your being here, uh, and I actually was at the seminar. Uh, I get that, but if there is anyone here who came to that seminar, I don't want you to hear the same stuff over again. And so what I'm going to do is, is sort of uh, look at some different dimensions, some different elements of parenting teenagers uh, than we did last time. The way we're going to approach this is, is first I'd like to share with you some kind of uh, broader principles. Whether you are a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or a parent of a teenager or even a younger child, these are principles that I think would be important to kind of to kind of frame what we're going to talk about in our second session this afternoon. And in that session, we're going to literally talk about some parenting strategies that can help us. 
be the kind of parents uh, that God calls us to be. So that's kind of the game plan. Does that make sense? So we'll begin with some of these broader principles, and then we will, uh, and then we'll sort of uh, shift gears in the second part and and talk about uh, and talk about some specific. Uh, strategies. Um, when I think about uh, parenting, I suppose probably one of the most important principles that that I can mention uh, is 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 what I call the incarnation principle. Um, the incarnation principle of parenting um, is 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 centered around this word that you no doubt have heard somewhere if you've been around the church very long. This word incarnation comes from the Latin word carne, which means meat. Like if you ever had chili con carne, that's why it's called chili con carne, because it's chili with meat, right? Unless you have it at, at school, then it's chili without carne. But, but basically the idea is that God came to this planet with meat on his bones, that something stunning happened at the birth of Jesus, that the God who created the world actually became a part of the world he created. C.S. Lewis said it would be like a shoemaker becoming a shoe. This is God who becomes a human being, incarnate, incarnation. I don't think I fully appreciated the, the power of this word, uh, incarnation, until uh, I came to a point in my parenting where I had to teach my oldest daughter, Erin, how to operate a motor vehicle. Um, I had a policy of my girls, with which you may disagree, I get it, but my policy was that if you want to drive the family car, you're going to have to learn to drive with a stick and a clutch. That, uh, yeah, well, two clutches later, I changed policies. But uh, anyway, I appreciate your enthusiasm. Uh, but uh, I had to, uh, I, I said, you know what? I said, Anybody can drive an automatic transmission. But if you can drive standard, you can always get home to me. And so you're going to have to learn to drive a stick and a clutch. Unfortunately, my daughter, Erin, a very, very bright young woman, was not able to grasp the delicate dialogue that takes place in a standard transmission automobile between the clutch and the accelerator. That when one begins to speak, the other needs to listen. And they can't talk at the same time. And we tried a number of, of metaphors, none of which seemed to fully connect. And so consequently, we start to move forward in an intersection. Uh, you, you know what happens, just this series of just uh, punishing blows to the head and upper body. And, and sometimes she'd look over at me, you know, and go, Daddy, how come when I'm driving you can't control your saliva? And I go, sweetheart, Daddy's being whiplashed into oblivion. Uh, I, 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 I have to say, too, that, um, that in, in, in her defense, I grew up in a family of all boys. And so I thought teaching a teenage girl to drive would not be unlike teaching a teenage male to drive. All you, with guys, it's simple. You tell them what to do, they grunt and ignore you. Uh, I, I remember our first lesson, our first intersection very vividly because I simply said to her, turn here. And she goes, <laughs> and, and I said, I, I just said to turn. It's the way you said it. And, and, and so from that point on, uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like, such a truck, you so need to stop, OMG. I mean, everything totally changed all the, the there was one good part about those lessons. Um, you see, what, see, when I was in high school and we took driver's education class, I don't know about you, we watched scary movies. 
Did you do that? Like just blood-curdling, gruesome, two or three collisions per class, maybe a decapitation. And, and then they'd turn the lights on and say, okay, kids, class is over, happy motoring. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I don't know what they watched in my daughter's driver's education class. I think it was Thelma and Louise. All I know is that uh, when we got in the car, it's like, boom, 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 objects flying past us. Then we got out of the driveway. And, uh, and, and, uh, the, and, and so, you know, I would go through these driving lessons, just, you know, oh my gosh, just white knuckling the whole thing. We finally get back to the house. The one good part of the lesson was we, we would debrief, like, you know how this works. What have we learned today? Yes, that's right. The blue light. That's, that's right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and so what do we learn? And, and, and we always saved a segment of our debrief where we would talk about remarks that were made during the lesson that were not funny at the time, right? But now, with the ignition off, everybody's a little more lighthearted. And, and so, uh, it, it'd be stuff like, uh, you know, like, Dad, why did you grab the steering wheel? Because, honey, the woman wasn't moving quickly enough to avoid becoming your victim. Uh, or uh, my, my younger daughter, Katie, she had a classic lunch because, Dad, I saw the tree. Me too. Yeah. It, it came right up to our windshield and leaned against the left side of the car. I said, remember, the object is not to spot them, but miss them. But, uh, but, but good, you spotted it. Uh, that's a start. I mean, that, and in fact, we still laugh about this. Our favorite line of all time is, Daddy, are you okay? Yes, sweetheart, don't worry. It's just a bloody nose. But these, uh, these driving lessons were hard, Okay. Uh, I mean, you've been out there, you know what it's like. I mean, there's yelling and there's, you know, crying and pouting, you know. And, and, and then she also gets emotional. And I remember we get back to the house and we, we, we get the front door. And, uh, you know, my wife opens the door. And, of course, my daughter just walks right, right, you know, she can just go right past her, goes straight upstairs. And, and we only have a one-story house. That's how, you know, she's angry. And, and uh, like, holy cow, what's she doing up there? And, 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 but my wife would always look at me and say the same thing. She would look at me and she'd say, don't forget why you are doing this. Don't forget why you are doing this. And of course, I'm thinking, because you won't do this. And, 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 uh, but what she was actually saying was really important. It was really, it was really profound in its own way. She was saying, in essence, Duffy, look, we both know this. There's some truth so big and so profound, you can't communicate them from a distance, right? That, that we really want our daughter to understand how to operate a motor vehicle. She's not going to get that by, by by, you know, watching scary movies. That's not going to do the trick. You, you, you're not going to work for you just to kind of hand her the operator's manual from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That, that not, that's not going to cut it. Uh, you, you can't just yell instructions from the side of the road, right? I mean, that's not safe over there. And, 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 and so, and, and she said, if you really want her to get this stuff, you got to be in the car with her. You know, right there beside her, good times, bad times, uphill, downhill, laughter, tears, you got to be in the car with her. It, I'm not saying it's always going to be pleasant. I'm not going to say it's going to always be a pleasant journey, but there are some truths too big, too profound to communicate from a distance. If you wanted to get this, get in the car with her. 
And that is something of what we mean by incarnation. You see, God understood there's no way he could communicate to us his love from a distance. So he did something stunning. He became a human being. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. Men and women, this is the supreme example of parenting. It is done up close. It is done right alongside. The first principle, the most important principle that I think we could grasp this afternoon is that if you want to communicate your values, your faith, your heart to your child, it cannot be done from a distance. We've got to be in the car with them. Even though it won't always be a pleasant journey, even though there'll be some bumps in the road, it won't always be exciting. And there will be some times of exhilaration, maybe even some times of laughter. But authentic faith is always communicated in relationships. One writer put it this way, study after study attests that healthy, happy, self-reliant adolescents and young adults are the products of stable homes in which both parents give a great deal of time and attention to the children. Paradoxically, oddly enough, it has taken the world's richest societies to ignore these basic facts. Men and women power devoted to the production of material goods counts a plus in all of our economic indices. Men and women power devoted to the production of healthy, happy, and self-reliant children in their own homes does not count at all. We have created instead this kind of topsy-turvy world where we spend more time uh, working on our jobs and earning money and our economy than our absolutely biggest investment, our most important investment, and that is our family. And so what we recognize uh, at the outset this afternoon is, is that we need to be in the car with them. Now, what that looks like and how we do that and some strategies for trying to manage that, we'll talk about that um, after the break, but, but big picture, big ideas, framing everything else, let's start there. That's an important one, the incarnation principle. Let's talk about a second principle, the ethos principle. The ethos principle. Um, our lives speak louder than our lips. Our lives speak louder than our lips. They're, one of the very first books on, on communication, oral communication, uh, was the book Rhetoric. It was written by Aristotle. And in that book, when he talked about communication, uh, he says, whatever kind of communication, this doesn't really matter, whatever sort of communication we do, there are three elements to that communication. There's, first of all, ethical communication. And uh, that's the speaker. That's the person actually doing the communicating. Who, who are they? What, what is their life like? Second is the emotional element of the communication. This is the listener. This is the audience. Uh, this afternoon, that's, that's you guys. That's the emotional element of this seminar, this message. And then there's the logical element of the message, which is the message itself. The message itself. Um, and, and, uh, and some of you may be along the way, perhaps in college or grad school or high, even high school, you, you've heard of these three ideas, but you've heard them uh, referred to with different terminology. Uh, that's cool. Sometimes you'll hear the ethical dimension referred to as ethos and the uh, emotional dimension referred to as pathos. And anybody want to take a stab at the logical dimension? Logos. Lagos. And, and, and so it's the same exact idea, slightly different terminology. If those are the terms you've heard, you, you still, you, you still kind of know the drill. Um, now, what that means is anytime you're communicating with anybody, anybody, there are these three elements to which we must pay attention. We have to pay attention. Um, 
because I speak uh, to teenagers a lot, as I did last night and as I will tonight, um, I have to recognize that anytime I'm speaking to a group of teenagers, these three elements of communication are important if I want to be effective. And so I realized they're basically sitting in there in that room, and, and the first question they're asking themselves is, why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to you? That's, that's ethos. The second question they're asking, and of course they're not articulating this, but in their hearts, that they're kind of asking subconsciously, uh, do you really know my questions? Do you really know my issues? Do you know anything about my life? That's pathos. Do you really know the kind of life that I'm living? And then the last one is why in the world would I want to listen to this information? You're going to talk about this. Why would I want to listen to that? Why would that matter to me? That's logos. And because I've been speaking to teenagers for a long time, I can also tell you that, that in addition to these three questions, there are three additional questions that are on their hearts. Um, are there going to be snacks after the message? That's free toss. Uh, why is your breath so bad after you speak, which is mentos, and how come you don't have any hair, which is wisos? Now, what, what I, I, I'm going to stress to us is this, that when you and I are trying to communicate with anybody, but especially with our kids, one of the absolute essentials is the ethical dimension of the message. In other words, the, the bottom line is who you are is more important than what you say. That the ethical dimension of the message means the audience wants to know, do you seem to have something in your life that I really want in mine? Do you seem to know what you're talking about, right? Nobody wants to take a navigation from the captain of the Titanic. You know, you're not going to have uh, Katy Perry speak at the ring thing next week. You know, uh, because you sense that, that maybe their credibility on that topic is not particularly strong, okay? So that's the ethical dimension of the message. And what this tells us as parents is, you know what? I can, I can say a whole bunch of stuff that's really, really true, that's my logos. And I can even have kids who are, uh, who are needy and who really need to learn this stuff and hear this stuff. That's the pathos. But if my life doesn't teach convincingly what I'm trying to communicate, I'm probably going to not be a very effective communicator of those values and those ideas. So, so we recognize the importance of this. Paul even uh, really points to this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, we were like uh, a nursing mother among you caring for her children because we loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And he goes on to say, you remember this, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while I preached the gospel of God to you. And then he says, you're witnesses. And so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. You go, oh, wait, wait a minute, Duffy, I think we might have a problem here because I'm not, I'm not holy, righteous, and, and, and blameless. And I just admit that. And I, and I totally understand that. Your children do not need perfect parents, but what they need are parents in pursuit. They need parents in pursuit. The Apostle Paul himself says in Philippians, he says, look, I don't, I don't claim I've already attained all this. So I've already gained perfection. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is one thing I'm going to do. One thing I'm going to do, forgetting what lies behind, straining what lies in, I'm going to press on. I am going to press on. Uh, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what our children need to see in us, is parents who are in pursuit. And the way we pursue it, we pursue it as a mother, tenderly nursing her children, but also, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, like a father, 
like a father who is willing to encourage and comfort and urge to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. So this ethos principle is just as important as the incarnation principle in some respects. Because after all, if you are giving driving lessons to your child and you have yourself a very poor safety record, that's going to diminish their enthusiasm for your instruction right? I mean, I remember Maggie and I, when we were uh, about to get married, we had to go to the pastor at her church. It was Episcopalian church. So he was a rector. We had to go to the rector and meet with him on four occasions just, just to, you know, learn how to have a good marriage. And I can still remember now, it was our fourth and final session, closing minutes of our last meeting with the pastor of our church. And he was kind of wrapping things up, right? Just kind of making some comments of closure. Won't be long, the big day. And, and Maggie, you're a very, very fortunate young woman. And then he said this, not, not funny. He said, uh, he said uh, I, I do want to... I, I do want to tell you both this before you leave today. I'm going to tell our board tonight, but I feel like you deserve to hear this. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I have decided to get a divorce. Okay? Now, now uh, think about this. The fourth and final lesson on how to have a, a lasting message uh, ends with his announcement of his own divorce. Now, does that mean that the logos was wrong? Does that mean the message he gave us was incorrect. The data doesn't mean what he said was untrue, but can you appreciate that that it was a little weak in the ethical dimension of the message, and and it made us less enthusiastic to embrace this, less confident that this guy knows what he's talking about. That's what we mean by this ethos principle: that that what we say with our lives speaks louder than with our lips. That makes sense. Let's talk about a third principle, the emperor penguin principle. The emperor penguin principle. I, I can remember when I was, um, when I was in uh, high school, one day I was, uh, I was in the library. I was just thumbing through National Geographic. I think I was uh, doing a study on Samoan women. And I remember as I was, uh, as I was going through there, I, I, I came across this article, a fascinating article about the emperor penguin the emperor penguin. And I don't know uh, how familiar you are with uh, penguin husbandry, but, but what happens when uh, an emperor penguin lays her egg is that she rolls it over and places it on the male, of the feet of the male. And, and then he stands there without moving for up to two months, two months until it hatches. I mean, can you imagine this guy's like, Holy cow. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, this is, oh, brother. Uh, and I mean, it, it, you know, whoops. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and it was, an amazing, in fact, some of you may have seen, there was actually a movie about this called The March of the Penguins. Uh, Morgan Freeman. And, and, the, and the part about the two months, that was a little slow in the film. But, but, uh, but it, it, was, it was an amazing odyssey. Of, of, of nurture. But at the heart of it is, I think, a very, very important principle of parenting. And that principle is simply this, that authentic nurture takes time. It takes time. Uh, we, we live in kind of an instant uh, culture, don't we? We want to microwave everything. I've literally seen a book called The One Minute Parent. 
Uh, that book is very, very useful for starting a fire. Uh, that, 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 I, I can promise you that almost nothing effective in parenting can happen in a minute. This is a long-term process, and it is exhausting, and a lot of it is waiting. You really want to believe there is life in there. But a lot of it is just kind of waiting for maturity to go. You cannot rush maturity. The, the best farmer in the world has to stare at barren soil for a season before there's even the first shoot, the first hope of any kind of harvest. You, you know, you probably heard about the little kid who kept going in the backyard and pulling up a plant to see if it had any roots in it. That, that will kill you. That will kill it. The, 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 what God calls us to in parenting is a patience of nurture and waiting for this maturity to happen. It may not happen on my schedule, my plan. This is not how I saw it happening. But maturity simply takes time. It can't be rushed. Um, all of us want to see uh, amazing overnight change. We want to see it in youth ministry, right? We want to see on this weekend retreat, you know, I saw you guys are doing a middle school thing coming up. and We want to see this weekend be awesome, amazing. You know, the last night when everybody's around the fire and all the kids' faces are kind of emblazoned gold, the flames and sparks shooting up in this nighttime sky. And there's kind of this holy solemnity. And, and, and then, you know, somebody steps up, and, you know, and says, young people, I'm going to ask you to do something difficult. I'm going to ask you to come up here. And stand with me next to this campfire. If you're serious about Jesus, just come on up. Stand right here with me next to this campfire. Or, or, or if, if you are really serious about Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to come up and throw a piece of wood. Wood. Into the fire. You know? Or, or uh, young people, this is not going to be easy, but I'm just... If you're really, really, really serious about Jesus, I'm going to ask you to come up right now and just, just stand in this campfire. And, 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 you know, when kids do it, we go, wow, this is fantastic. And we get to go back and say, you won't believe how many uh, kids we torched. And, and, uh, and it was awesome. Well, it is great. I actually love to see what God does at the campfire. But here's what I've discovered in my years of ministry is that the test of what happens at that campfire is what happens when that fire burns out. That takes time. That takes, Jesus said, remember this in the parable of the soils? He said, if anything, you need to be suspicious of the overnight blossom. Because they look good. They look fantastic. But when the heat is on, they wilt. And, and, so, and so what God calls us to as parents is not something that's going to happen fast. It takes time. It takes time. Let's go to the big picture principle. The big picture principle. Um, there's a book that I heard about last year on National Public Radio. It's a book called Zoom. Has any, any of you ever heard this before? You'd be pleased to know it in, involves zero optical illusions, but it is an interesting book in that it has no words in it, but it tells kind of a, an intriguing story. Um, you, when you open the book, when you go to the first page of Zoom, uh, you actually see this picture. And there's no explanation. You don't really know what it is. You're just sort of left to your imagination. It goes, you know, your first response might be, oh, that must be some kind of starfish. Or maybe it's uh, the rays of the sun. 
or, or maybe it's like a, a microbe on something at, at Chipotle. You know, you don't, you don't really know uh, what, it, what it really is. But if you zoom in, if you zoom out, I mean, you begin to say, oh, okay, I get it. That's the crown. That's a crown of a rooster. Uh, and that rooster is being looked at by these little kids. And if we zoom out, we can see they're kind of standing on a bench uh, in, the, in the middle of a large uh, farmhouse. But if we zoom out again, we discover, oh, okay, it's not really a farmhouse. It's a toy farmhouse being played with uh, by this little girl, uh, except it's not really a little girl playing with a toy farmhouse. If you zoom out, uh, it's actually a toy catalog being held by a little boy who's uh, reading about uh, this toy farmhouse, except this little boy's not really uh, just reading about the toy catalog. He's actually sitting next to the swimming pool uh, while other people are swimming, except it's not just a swimming pool. It's a swimming pool on a cruise ship. Except he's not really sitting on a cruise ship. He's actually, uh, the cruise ship is on the side of a bus. It's a poster. And the bus is actually driving through the city. Except it's not really a picture of a bus driving through the city. It's actually a guy watching a bus driving through the city on television. And he's out in the middle of the desert. Except it's not really a guy watching television out in the middle of the desert. It's actually a, a postage stamp from the state of Arizona. Except it's not really a, a guy in Arizona. It's actually a guy looking at the postage stamp on a South Sea island in the middle of the Pacific, except it's not really a guy looking at the postage stamp on the South Sea island. It's a guy looking at that guy while he's flying overhead about 1,000 feet in the sky. And it's an interesting little book because it reminds us of, I think, a very, very important truth. That the essential task of parenting is to help our children see the big picture. Because here's what you're going to find about adolescence, if you haven't already, is that adolescence presents our children with lots and lots of pictures, and they tend to think they've seen the whole picture. They tend to make choices on the basis of little tiny pictures that they see on their screen, on their phone, on TV, uh, with their friends. And on the basis of these little tiny puny pictures, they make a lot of important choices. Our job as parents is to say, wait, wait, wait a minute, there's more to the picture than you know. Let's zoom back. There's a bigger picture here. You need to see the bigger picture. You need to hear the bigger story. This is, in essence, what Moses was talking about um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he said, These are, are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and the commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. In other words, Moses is saying, look, I, I, I know you're going to see a whole bunch of other uh, pictures here that, that, that uh, seem very convincing and very colorful and very vivid, and they tell their own story, but you got to remember, you got to keep your mind on the big picture, and you parents, he's saying to us, you parents, it is your job to teach your children and your children's children. And then he goes on to say, Hear, Israel, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. There are consequences to making choices based on the small picture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. 
talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God is reminding us through the words of Moses the importance. One of the key elements of our task as parenting is to help our kids see the big picture. The problem, of course, is that in our culture, we live in a culture where we're told, well, the big picture is, is you got to do well in school. You got to do well in school because you got to have a good transcript. You got to have a good transcript so you can go to the right college. You got to have the right college so you can get a good job. You got to get a good job so you can have the right house because that's the picture we're all aiming for lots of money. And in our country, in our culture, this is the picture that we are obsessed with. God says, no, parents, I need you to please help your kids see a bigger picture than that. there, There is a bigger story, a bigger picture. And our primary role as parents is to help our young people see that big picture. Let's look at one more principle. We are zooming here. We are zooming. Uh, One more principle. Um, And then we'll take a break. We're rocking, right? And and then uh, we'll just just stop. But no, we'll uh, we'll take a break. Uh, One more principle here. This is what I call the morning sickness principle. The morning sickness principle. Um, When uh, Maggie and I had been married for about five years before she contracted pregnancy, and, and I remember the way I was uh, alerted to this great news was because I woke up one morning to the sound of her vomiting, which is a little bit out of her normal routine. Now, I mean, she, I, in other words, but she didn't put like pampers on my placemat or booties on my pillow. I mean, I, I literally hear this awful sound in the bathroom. So I get up and, you know, I'm a loving, nurturing husband. So I go in there and say, you know what? I'm trying to sleep. And uh, no, I go in there. And, 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 and I don't even get a chance to speak, actually. Truth be told, I don't even get a chance to say a word because I walk in. She's there on all fours in front of the toilet. But as I walk in, she hears me enter. And all of a sudden, everything becomes surreal because she looks up at me with this look of, of, of splendor and, and wonder as if she's seen New Testament documents floating. <laughs> uh, you know. And, 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 and she goes, she looks up at me, she says, we're pregnant. We're pregnant. And I wanted to sort of share the excitement, uh, but, but, you know, it's hard. We see your wife barfing her brains out and go, this is beautiful, you know, <laughs> and she wasn't going to kiss her. And, uh, and, um, and, and yet what she was saying was, was profound. It was actually important. She was saying, look, I, I know what you see here. I know what you think you see, but don't be fooled. Something amazing is happening right before our very eyes. I understand all the evidence to the contrary, but, but don't be fooled by it, buddy. Something, a miracle is unfolding right here in our presence. The morning sickness principle of parenting is, is very, very simple. It reminds us that the process doesn't always look like progress. The process doesn't always look like progress. Um, you know, even, even in those uh, ensuing months of pregnancy, waiting for the baby to come, and I can still remember, you know, wondering and waiting and hoping and, and dreams and could it be. And, 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 and then I remember, and this, is the, this was the, 
this is the kicker. I can still remember, um, you know, as she got bigger and bigger that, you know, we'd be laying in bed sometimes. And, and maybe I'm the only guy that ever did this, but, but she would go, oh, 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 the baby is moving. The baby's moving. And she'd put my hand on her stomach, and I never felt a thing. Not and, and I didn't want to be rude and say, let's be honest, you're, you're just gaining weight, you know. And, and, and so I, I'm kind of, yeah, wow, ouch. you know, like I felt, I felt nothing. And then, and then even, even when the baby is born, they don't look like you think they're going to look, right? When they come out, they're covered with all this goo, you know. It's like one guy said his, his wife gave birth to his first son. He goes, honey, he gave birth to a lizard. Uh, you know, I mean, it's cute, but put it back. Uh, you know, it's just not what you think. In fact, I can remember, see, I was a youth pastor in Barrington Baptist uh, Church in Barrington, Rhode Island, suburb of Providence, as is everything in Rhode Island. And, and, uh, and I remember uh, our two girls were born at Women's and Infants Hospital there in, in uh, Providence. And um, I can still remember vividly that, that first child being born because, because, um, you know, the doctor, uh, I mean, the nurse came and said, okay, Mrs. Robbins, uh, you, are, you are ready to give birth to this baby, you know. And so we're going to now take you to the labor suite. And I heard labor suite, and I thought, that, that sounds nice, like a labor suite. You know, like you, when I imagine, I imagine kind of like a, maybe a dimly lit room, nice carpet, maybe some quiet, maybe a TV I could watch while she finishes up. And it just sounds delightful, you know, and, uh, and maybe, maybe we could get another labor suite for a year from now for just a vacation. And it just sounded awesome. Well, the labor suite at Women's and Infants Hospital in Providence was literally, this is no exaggeration, it was a wide hallway, a wide hallway in which women were lined up uh, on gurneys, and each of them were separated by these canvas curtains. And, and I don't know if the hospital was aware of this or not, but these curtains were not actually soundproof. And, and, so, uh, and so, uh, so we're over there trying to do our breathing and, and really get this thing going. Meanwhile, I am hearing in some of the other stalls uh, just gruesome, uh, you know, just gosh-awful noises and shrieks and Screams and women saying unkind things about their husbands and and I you know I'm just all of a sudden I'm going man I, I don't I don't know what they're giving birth to over there but it sounds like a geometric object and and uh, and and, uh, and and then then the thought what if we hadn't got what if their experience is something we haven't gotten to yet right like it's it's still coming. And, and I said, I said, that, I said, I'm going to need another shot, uh, you know, and, and this is getting serious. Well, well, it, uh, you know, it, it, in the midst of all that, I remember thinking to myself, if you just walked in here, like if you just landed from Mars and came to the labor suite, you'd go, what is this? This is gruesome. This is ugly. This is macabre. And somebody go, no, no, actually, this is the sound of new life coming to be. I don't know how many times I've sat with parents who are telling me uh, about their child, and I can hear it in their voices. This is not what we thought this was going to be like. This is not what we expected. This, this is not our aspiration. This is not what we hoped. This is not our little bundle of joy. This, this looks bad. This looks ugly. This looks, this looks grim. And I have to remind them, well, actually, what this looks like is life happening. 
This is what new life looks like as it's coming to be. That it is kind of messy, and there are some screens, and there will be some pushing. And, and it's not always going to be pleasant. I always tell parents of teenagers, you're going to go through labor twice with every child. The only thing is, the second time lasts approximately eight years. And, and, and that is the nature of the game. That the process doesn't always look like progress. There's actually an interesting passage in Galatians chapter 4, one of these little obscure verses, easy to pass it by. But the Apostle Paul says, You foolish Galatians with whom I groan in labor until Christ be formed in you. Authentic nurture is always about labor pain. It's always about birthing. It's always about pushing. There's always going to be some mess and some muck and some difficulty and some pain. But that's what it looks like when new life is coming to be. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. Uh, you know, maybe you are, are thinking, man, this is, from what I can see, from what I can hear, this looks really bad. And I get it. I'm not trying to promise you something that I can't promise you. I don't know how the story's going to go. But here's what I can promise you, is the process doesn't always look like progress. And that long before anybody realizes anything, God is at work. There are miracles unfolding that do not look miraculous at the time. The morning sickness principle is a pr principle that reminds us the story's not over. Don't give up. I recognize what you see. I realize it looks kind of bad, but the process doesn't always look like progress. Now, those are some principles that are going to shape uh, our, our, our second session together. What we're going to do is take a little break here. Uh, I think they've got some steaks on the grill outside. And uh, so just circle the building till you find them. Oh, oh she's on her way. And, uh, and I, I was only kidding about those steaks. But uh, anyway, uh, when you come back, we will, uh, we will continue our discussion by looking at specific, practical strategies for effective parenting. Uh, hopefully, by the time you get back, I'll come up with something. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the game plan, okay? We'll take about a 10-minute break, and then we'll reconvene. Hey, thanks for listening. I appreciate it.
time of day. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I don't know. I find myself, uh, I, anytime in the afternoon I'm seated for very long. Uh, you know, I, I had a, one of my favorite classes in seminary was right after lunch. And I didn't usually eat lunch. I'd go play racquetball. But then I'd come back over there and, uh, and it'd be a warm classroom. And even though I liked the guys teaching, uh, I just remember kind of, you know, the eyelids getting heavier and heavier. And uh, eventually I would sort of uh, lapse into involuntary prayer. And, uh, and I just want you to know that if I do see your eyes closed this afternoon, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume you're interceding on my behalf. Uh, from what I could see in the first session, we have some real prayer warriors uh, in the room. And, uh, and, and so I appreciate that. One of my favorite websites uh, is a website uh, called um, Awkward Family Photos. Have you ever seen this place before, this site? They got some great stuff. Uh, these are pictures that families have taken of themselves that that were probably ill-conceived from the beginning. But there's some pretty funny stuff in there. There, there are uh, um, uh, you know, attempts by families to kind of capture those magical moments uh, of which memories are made, you know, where, where you just go, you know what, let's, let's all uh, go over to the cemetery and, and pose on Grandma's grave. And, and uh, you know, uh, just to celebrate. <laughs> or or the, a family night, you know, when you get out the old pet snake and just wrap it around our neck. Um, I like this next one because you can just tell the father thinks he's very hip and very zany and cool. Look at me, and the kid's just going, what is this guy thinking? You know, please act like an adult. And then, of course, there are the outtakes that didn't go too good. And then there are the times when you say, you know what, you know what, we don't have one picture of all of us with our dust busters. And, 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 and so uh, you, 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 you remedy that. And then there's a whole genre of awkward family photos uh, where uh, everybody's wearing the same pattern. And some of these are really classic. There's the Tarzan look. This one, actually, the first time I saw this picture, I had a seizure. But, uh, and then there, then there are um, then the ones where we, we showcase dads uh, nurturing and caring for their child. Uh, when mom is away, dad plays toss with the baby or uh, takes the baby and feeds him to a llama. Uh, and, and then uh, and what says fatherhood more than uh, changing the baby in front of the gun rack? And, and then, of course, uh, there's this tender uh, picture, heartwarming, of mom, her child, and a large tiger, a huge carnivore. And this last one actually is my favorite picture of all because I have a sense <laughs> you could probably write a novel about this picture. Uh, you just... If you can't write a story based on that picture, you're, you can't write anything. I mean, this is, that is a classic, classic picture. I'd like to know more. I wish I could tell you the Robbins family has never taken uh, awkward photos as a family, but uh, we have. Uh, like every good family, we have our share of awkward family photos. I mention this because um, what I hope that you glean from that first session is that, first of all, you know what? All of us, all of us have awkward families. And the idea behind a seminar like this is not to make our families flawless, not to make everything perfect, but to say, you know what, let's try to shape our families with some general principles, some basic principles that we derive from Scripture that we can use uh, to make our parenting more effective and, and more in accord uh, with the kind of aspirations that God has uh, for us and for our kids. And so in this uh, second session of the afternoon... 
We're going to talk about specific, specific uh, uh, steps that we can take to be more effective in our parenting, specific principles or rules that can help us. And the first one of those is this, rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. I think one of the first principles of effective parenting is to recognize that, that rules I- incorporating our, our, inculcating our values into the lives of our young people, our children, our teenagers, uh, requires two things. It requires, first of all, uh, relationships, and secondly, it requires consequences. In other words, when someone disobeys, there needs to be consequence. We're, in a few minutes, going to talk about consequences. Right now, I want us to look at relationships. Uh, If you were uh, managing uh, any other kind of entity, rather than a family, a business, or a team, or whatever it might be, uh, there are essentially three different types of authority that are that are available to you to exercise your leadership. One type of authority is what might be described as open coercive authority. So one way you might exercise your control over a, over a company or office or a team uh, would be through open course of authority. Open course of authority is the authority that the strong have over the weak. It's the, it's the authority the big have over the little. Uh, when I was growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, we had a guy, I worked at the YMCA, we had a guy on our staff, his name was Mike Bolo. And Mike Bolo was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian and a large human being, uh, forbidding, uh, most unsightly man. And, and, uh, and I remember that he had a, um, he, his neck was bigger than my thigh. And uh, anyway, I remember one time we were down at Myrtle Beach, and uh, it says I described this morning that the tide, the undertow, had kind of carried the kids down the beach. And so one of the counselors said, hey, we got to get the kids back up here you know, in front of our station. And so one of the counselors obediently starts to trot off across the sand. Bolo doesn't, all he does is stand up and just boom out across the beach, bellows out, everybody back up the beach. It was amazing. Adults who weren't even with our group <laughs> start picking up beach furniture, walking down the beach. They're, like, they're going, I don't know who he is, but I don't want him angry with me. Okay, that's open course of authority. And that's the authority that, that you had at one point in your child's life. You were bigger than him. You were stronger. You could say, hey, don't make me come over there. And like, holy cow, okay. You know, or, or, or like my dad used to slow the car down really fast. And, and, and we knew, me and my brother knew, that meant uh, there needed to be a truce or it was going to be serious, going to be ugly in the next couple of minutes. And so that, that, that's open coercive authority. Um, it's, it's in some ways very, very effective. And I would even say in some ways legit, except for this. As your child grows older and into their teenage years, open course of authority becomes less effective. It becomes effective uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, they might be bigger than you, right? You, you, you feel kind of silly going, don't get me mad at you. Uh, or, or, or you do hit them and they go, <coughs> you know, you realize uh, the threat of fear is in punishment is not going to actually be very effective. But, but here's the bigger problem is that let's suppose you were the biggest, baddest, meanest, and you were able, you were able somehow to cause your child to knuckle under your care and control because you are big and bad. 
that's only going to be effective as long as the threat is actually felt. In other words, as long as they are where you are. Um, if, if there's no pressure, there's no concern that they're going to be found out, that sort of authority bears no consequence whatsoever, has no authority whatsoever. So when they're away from you, which they will be increasingly as they move through their teenage years, if they're away at college, if they're on their own, uh, that sort of uh, attempt to enforce my values on my kid is going to ultimately be bankrupt. It, 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 there's a point at which I think uh, spanking and punishment, uh, that's totally legitimate. But it does have its limits, and especially as our children move into adolescence, open course of authority is not very effective. Uh, now, some people appeal to a second type of authority called institutional authority. Institutional authority is the authority that you have by virtue of your role in an institution. Uh, so, so remember when you were a little kid in second grade and, and you're all sitting there in class and the teacher says, boys and girls, I'm going to leave for a few minutes to have a smoke. No, she didn't say that. But she said, I'm going to leave for a few minutes and, 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 uh, and I don't want any talking in the room here while I'm gone. And, and we go, okay, teacher. And she'd take off and it was awesome. We could chat and visit with friends. It was fantastic, right? Except then all of a sudden the kid over near the door heard what sounded like adult footsteps coming down the hall. Remember that? And that's when that person sounded the warning, shh, teacher's coming, teacher's coming. And we all got quiet again. That's, that's institutional authority. Now, we don't know who the teacher is. We don't know anything about the teacher. We don't know if they're big or strong. All we know is those footsteps are adult footsteps. And in this institution, adults have authority. So shush, be quiet, okay? In fact, I had a classic example of this um, yesterday or Friday. I was, I was driving over here from Valley Forge, and I'm on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. All of a sudden, I see all these taillights in front of me. I go, what is this? Well, you know what it was. It was Pennsylvania State Trooper over on the side of the road, and everybody sees him, and everybody slows down. Now, they're not really worried about that guy jumping out of the car and shooting us. Uh, they didn't think, oh, he's going he's to open the door and just club us. And so it was, it was, we don't even know who's in the car. And we certainly weren't thinking to ourselves, hey, that's Officer Bob. We don't want to grieve him. What, what we were thinking is simply this, people in cars painted like that, wearing uniforms like that, in the institution of our government, they have the capacity to punish and levy fines. So we slow down, right? That's, that's institutional authority. It's the authority that you might, uh, for example, try to wield as a parent when um, in, in the throes of conflict, you know, you, you look earnestly into your child's face and they go, why do I have to do this? And you say, because I am your mother. I am your father. And, 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 and the idea is you're, you're sort of appealing to an institutional uh, role. Like, no, no, <laughs> don't you get it? I am your mother, you are my child, you will obey. And, and, um, and, and you might be able to pull that off. That might happen. They might go, oh, that, you know, I had forgotten. That's right, your mom. Uh, that, that might work. And it's certainly legitimate authority. I mean, this is authority that's uh, clearly mentioned in Scripture. Children obey your parents uh, in the Lord. Uh, that your days may be long in the land. It's, it's totally legitimate. But let's be honest, uh, since the 60s, institutional authority has deteriorated in this country. That by and large, the mindset of the culture is question, 
question authority. But even if, even if it were uh, an authority that you found was effective, and you could wield that sort of authority with your child, here's the problem. That sort of authority, again, is only effective in so far as you are present, right? Like, like, like after the adult footsteps passed our door of our classroom and the footsteps started getting quiet again, we start talking again, right? Right? Even, on, even on Friday, this is, when, when, when we passed the, this is going to surprise you a little bit. After they passed the trooper, some people sped up. And, and, uh, and, 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 and that's the nature of institutional authority. It's only valid insofar as you are right there with them. And increasingly, as they move in their adolescent years, you're not going to be there with them. And so if you really want to try to, to enforce or strengthen or affirm your values and build your values into their life, even, even institutional authority, as valid as it is, there's got to be a third uh, way. And that's where we lead to what's called personal authority. And personal authority is the authority that you have vested in you by who you are, by virtue of who you are. In other words, the, 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 the strength of your character, because there's something inherently or innately in you that makes this person go, I, I'm going to follow them. I'm going to respect them. Uh, I, you know, I think, I think about my own parents. Most of the bad stuff I didn't do as a kid, frankly, I didn't not do it because I thought my dad was going to beat me or because I thought my mom would, you know, punish me somehow. I mean, that, that might have happened. But, but, uh, but honestly, the main reason I didn't do the really bad stuff is because I knew my mom and dad loved me, and I loved them, and I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I just knew if they found out I did it. It wasn't that I didn't want to do it, but if they found out I did it, it would just crush them. And I couldn't bear that. I couldn't bear that pain. In, in other words, I wasn't really worried about breaking their rules. I was worried about breaking their heart. And that happens through a relationship. That, that happens because there's something in this relationship that I don't want to violate. I don't want to damage. And let me say, that is a very, very potent type of authority. That's an authority that goes with you everywhere. That's an authority that says, I want these people to be proud of me. I want these people to, to, to I don't want to do anything to breach uh, the relationship that, that I have. That sort of authority, though, doesn't just happen. Uh, that sort of authority is earned. That sort of authority takes time to build. And that authority happens when we are in the car with them building relationships. But there are some practical steps that, that we can take uh, to do this. Uh, for example, part of really, really building that sort of authority is being a person who's willing to listen. As parents, this is one of the really important skills we can develop, learning to listen. Uh, we're pretty good at talking to our children, but maybe not as good sometimes at listening to our children. Um, when I think about listening, I think in general, this is a skill that we uh, have lost in our culture. We're not particularly good at it. There's so many noises coming at us. It's a cacophony out there. We don't really have to listen very hard. Uh, in fact, we have to really try hard not to hear everything or just go nuts and, and the problem is that we get so good at sort of ignoring and being uh, focused on stuff and, and trying not to be distracted that we are unable to really concentrate and listen when we, when we wish to. Um, I like to suggest to parents a, a simple uh, three 
ideas for good listening. I call it the listening fad. It's sort of an acrostic um, because uh, each idea begins with the letter F, A, or D. So what does good listening look like in the life of a parent? Well, first of all, it begins with focus, with focus. We all know what that means because good listening is good listening, whether you're talking to a teenager, whether you're talking to a spouse, or talking to a buddy, or talking to a, a colleague at work. Good listening starts with focus. It's making eye contact. It's, it's nodding your head. It's sort of repeating back. So I think I hear you saying this. It's taking the time to communicate visually and otherwise to your uh, partner here. Hey, like I, I hear what you are saying. I'm focused on what you're saying. In practical terms as a parent, that means, for example, that uh, I'm going to uh, put the video on pause. That means I'm going to lower the newspaper. And, and not just that spring-loaded thing where you got to talk fast because it's going to come back up. But I mean actually lower the newspaper in a way that communicates you have time to talk. You don't have to rush this. Let's have conversation. Now, uh, the problem with focus is that, uh, is that one of the gifts of adolescence is they seem to want to come to us in those moments when focus is least possible. Uh, you may have noticed this. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I can remember times when, like, when my girls were in high school, I, I, I went to bed way before them, and I'd be laying there. I mean, I'm sound asleep. I've had three dreams already, you know, and, and all of a sudden, I open my eyes, and there's this person standing above me with a document that must be signed uh, by tomorrow, you know, or they can't go to school. I'm going, I don't even know who you are. You, you know, ask your sister to sign it. She might still be up. You know, I, I don't have a clue. And, 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 and that's one of the problems. They want to often talk when it's least convenient. Like I said to my wife, what is it about a closed bathroom door that says, visit me? You know, I, 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 I get it that it's not always convenient. But here's the problem. Uh, as your children move from childhood into adolescence, uh, that kind of communication becomes more difficult. Uh, sociologists refer to this phenomena as disengagement. Disengagement is the child that used to love family night, just think, oh my gosh, when is it? Is, we had to wait another week. This is awesome. Let's have fun. Now that same child at 15 is, do we have to have family night? Can you guys have family night without the rest of the family? I mean, can, can we, can, or, or do I have to go on vacation with you guys? I want to be with my friends. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, and, and, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, this, this, this disengagement piece makes the focus all the more difficult because you're just trying to get their attention. You're just trying to get them to draw close. But, but the focus is absolutely essential. And I'm going to say something, too, that one of the, one of the main habits of, uh, of, of parents when our children disengage is, is, is pouting. And, and this is unfortunate. In other words, we go, no, no, hey, look, if he, <laughs> fine, if he does not want to be with us, we will not spend time with like we're going to starve him out, right? We're going to smoke him out. Just, just watch what happens. Two or three weeks, he's going to come crawling back this Friday night. Dad, me and you, Home Depot, uh, you know, and he's just going to cave under the pressure. I remember, I remember the first time my older daughter, Erin, I go, I, I, the first pinch point I really felt in adolescence, I said, hey, Erin, this Friday night, me and you, father-daughter date night, 
And she looked at me the way you'd sort of look at a, at a, at a small, pathetic animal and, 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 said, uh, and said, Dad, this Friday night, I'm going out with Rick. And I'm going, Rick? Like, why do we need Rick? Like, I mean, I love you and everything, and I'm, I'm a guy, and we, we're getting along pretty good. We're having fun together. Well, why do we need him? And I finally said, okay, you know what? If he sticks to himself, he can come with us. But, but, uh, but, but she wasn't saying, in essence, I don't want you in my life. She was saying, I want to bring some other people into my life. But it's easy to take that personally. And, and, and so, and so when, when we're trying to kind of build this bridge and develop this sense of focus, uh, we often find the momentum for them is the other way, which means you're going to probably have to be a little bit subversive. You're going to have to probably find opportunities in which you can focus on them, and they are actually engaging you. And, and every child is different in this respect. I'm not saying try this. It will definitely work. I can tell you two things that worked with my girls. One was, and I just discovered this by accident, but... Uh, but when I guess they were about middle school, um, I was up there. And, you know, I was doing the thing that most parents do. I'm reading to them. We're singing together. We're praying together. And um, anyway, one of them said, Dad, I have a cramp on my leg. Would you rub my leg? So I do. I'm kind of starting to give her a, a, a kind of a back rub massage thing. But I realized that, um, that the longer I rubbed her leg, the more she kept talking. I mean, she's not stupid, right? She goes, if he's going to rub my leg, I'll keep saying stuff. And, and, and so I decided, just I didn't say anything. I decided as long as they're talking, I will keep giving them back rubs. I'll give them back rubs. And again, they're not, they're not, they're not idiots. I mean, they're, they're, they're going this, I get it. And so they're, they're, we're at dad, let's talk about Scandinavia. I mean, basically, you know, if you're getting a back rub, you're going to come up with topics, right? And, and, um, and, and when I look back on it, now again, I didn't think this at the time, but in retrospect, I can see, well, first of all, when you're physically relaxed, you're emotionally relaxed. So of course we had better conversations. Plus the lights were off. So it wasn't this interrogation, you know, where were you on the night of, you know, it, it was a much more relaxed, give and take conversation. Um, and, and, and the funny thing about it is, as I look back now to my own teenagers, that's kind of what my dad did. My dad would come in at night, but he didn't, he didn't give us a back rub. You know what my dad would do? He would, he would sit on my back. He would sit on my back. And I still have a hard time building relationships with guys because I say, would you mind? Just kidding. But, but, uh, but, but. What, what, what I think I discovered is, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe they're going to pull away, but this is a place where they're going to come close. The other thing I did with uh, my girls, both of them, ever since they were little girls, uh, was I took each girl to breakfast every other week. And I did that all the way through high school. It, it, each girl, there were two of them, one breakfast one week, one breakfast the next week, all the way through high school. And, 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 of course, when they were little, I mean, they just thought it was awesome that dad would take them to McDonald's. Oh, my gosh, this, we are the luckiest kids in the world. By the time they were in high school, if they were going to get up early to go to breakfast, I had to go to the embassy suite. We had to do the buffet. Um, and they're going, Dad, how come you're not eating, sweetheart? We can't both afford to have breakfast. You, you enjoy your fruit and your pork. But, but, but here's what I also want you to understand is that, is that when we had that time, uh, that it that it wasn't it wasn't like this 
intentionally like, hey, we are now communicating serious things. In other words, that's one of the ways I think parents can botch this is, you know, like uh, every, every breakfast was not a serious conversation. It's like, uh, honey, pass the orange juice and let's talk about fornication. You know, I mean, if, if you do that, she's not going to want to go to breakfast. And plus, anytime somebody mentions bacon, she's going to get a nervous tick. And so, and, and so I, I realized that, hey, you know what? I might have 10 breakfasts so that in the 11th breakfast, we can talk about something important. The problem is most parents, they only want to have the 11th breakfast. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You got to be in the car with them. And that requires, that requires focus. It's about that relationship. Um, second is accept. A is accept. Um, what I mean by this is that good listening accepts what someone feels. doesn't mean you have to approve of what they're feeling. And it certainly doesn't mean you have to approve of how they express their feelings. But what we should probably do is accept the fact that they have feelings. That they have feelings. Those feelings are real. Like I, I remember when I first got married, you know, there were many lessons I had to learn as a young husband. But one of the lessons I had to learn uh, and occasionally have to relearn is that I thought whenever we had a disagreement that the way I could show love to her would be by uh, carefully and logically dismantling her uh, f- argument so that she could understand why she didn't need to feel the way she felt, right? Like I would just logically, meticulously explain to her why her reasoning was flawed. And I thought if I did that right, uh, she would just brighten up and say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong, let's have sex. And uh, this is going to surprise you a little bit, that's not what happened. Uh, I would carefully point out to her the flaws in her argument, and she would say, I don't care. I'm still upset. Well, I know what that means. I'm a male. That means explain it again at a higher volume. And, 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 uh, and, and what I had to finally get to me is, you know what? You're not going to logically reason her into feeling what she doesn't feel. She feels what she feels. You feel what you feel. And I don't know how many times, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, kind of witness these conversations or I'll hear kids talk about where they're sharing their feelings with their parents and their parents go, you don't have any right to feel that way. You don't have any right to feel that way. As if the kid's going to go, oh, you're right. I am very happy now. You know, like, like it doesn't work like that. You feel what you feel. So good listening. Now, do you have the right to limit the way they express their feelings? Of course you do. That there needs to be respect. But don't try to limit what they can feel. They feel what they feel. And then thirdly is draw out. Draw out. Um, one, of the, one of the tough parts about focus and communication is that when you move into adolescence, uh, a lot of kids become uh, less willing to talk with their parents, less willing to be verbal with their parents. I do think a lot of adults misunderstand this. They underestimate the perceived risk on the part of a teenager with talking to an adult. And, and all of us felt this when we were kids, but we just forgot it. That, that when you're a teenager, remember this, if an adult wants to talk with you, that's usually a bad sign. That is, that is not a sign of hope. That, that most of the time when you're a teenager and you are sought out by somebody, it is, it is not a good thing. Remember, remember when you were in homeroom in school and they go, please send Duffy Robbins to the office. What did everybody in homeroom do? 
That's right. Because they knew you're not being invited there because the principal's lonely. You know, you have, you have violated some sanction. And, and, and so you just know if an adult, even my own daughters, I'd say, hey, hey, Aaron and Katie, come downstairs a minute. You know what they say? Are we in trouble? Are we in trouble? Like, we don't allow them on the ground floor except for torture. Come on down. Your mom's got a machete. Be brave. You know, it just, it just, it, that, that, is the, that is the general vibe that kids have when they think an adult wants to talk with them, which means that if I want to talk with them, I need to be aware of that, right? I, I need to recognize that there, there's already an inherent threat in this, in this encounter. And, and that's why when, when, you know, when you talk with your child, and this is not true for every child, but, but a lot of your kids, they, they, they answer you in these monosyllabic, you know, just as short as answering. We, we, were, having a, um, we were having a parents meeting one time in and, and, uh, our middle school. And somebody asked our middle school uh, pastor, she said, Scott, what do you do on Tuesday night at primetime? Because every week when my son comes out, he comes down the sidewalk, gets in the car. Every week I ask him the same question. What did you do tonight at primetime? And every week he says the same thing, which is what? Nothing. Nothing. We're in there sweating blood, you know. And he, oh, nothing. And, 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 I, and I just sort of laughed to myself because I thought, this mom doesn't get it. That is the stock answer of any middle schooler when asked by their parents what happened at school, what happened at church. She could have said, well, well, well what was the mushroom cloud over the middle school? Oh, nothing. You know, why was everybody's flesh hanging? Oh, nothing. You know, what was Katy Perry wearing at the concert? I mean, it, it's basically always going to be the shortest possible. Because if you don't want to get hit, you make yourself a small target. And you know who teaches them that? We do. Yeah, we do. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. This is not, a, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell the story. I'm not proud of this, but this is just the way it works. You know, I remember one time when my daughter Erin was going to middle school. It was our first child in middle school. I'm a youth pastor. I'm excited to see this journey begin. She comes home. It's the first day of school. I said, Erin, we're around the dinner table. What happened in school today? Oh, nothing. And, and uh, I said, oh, okay, all right. You know, we're there a long time, but uh, all right. And and, uh, and then next night, you know, I, same thing. There was a lot of conversation around the table. Aaron, what, what happened with you today in school? Oh, nothing. And, and third night, same thing. Thursday night, I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed. And so I said to her, I said, Aaron, um, you know what? Uh, either you got the, the world's most boring school or you're missing something. And this is what I want you to do. I love your stories because she has, she has a great sense of humor. I said, I love your stories. You make me laugh. I want you tomorrow, something's going to happen at school. I want you to see it. I want you to watch for it. And tomorrow night, I want you to tell me about it. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Now, and mind you, this is a child that, that is a child used to talk nonstop at me. Like if you wanted to talk with somebody, she had to give her a biscuit. And, uh, you know, and, and so, and so uh, you go, uh, Friday night, I go, Aaron, Aaron, what happened in school that I can't wait to hear? She's, ah, okay, okay, like this is like really funny. Like, okay, like today, like, oh my gosh, like in, in algebra class, like Mrs. Smith, like drop the chalk and she been over and we like saw stuff. <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, being a loving, nurturing Christian dad, I go, I go, sweetheart, that is not funny. You know, 
Now, now what have I just taught her? That, that whenever dad says, what happened at school today, what should you say? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. It's just easier on everybody. It's just, my wife said later, she said, you know, maybe sometimes when the kids speak, they're not asking you to sort of give them moral clarity on a topic. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I, I think that's true. That, 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 you know, here's the problem with parents. Is, see, we forget. The kids say all kinds of junk, just all kinds of stupid things. But they say 80% of that to see if it's safe to say the 20% they actually mean. You know, it's sort of like you might, you might poke a dog with a stick to see if it growls. If it doesn't growl, then you go pat it, you know. We basically see the stick, and that's the end of everything. We, we've got to be willing to draw them out to say it's safe to talk here. And, and that will happen with us listening, with our mouths closed and listening. Um, but it also, uh, I think there's some, there's some skill involved in terms of the way you ask questions. You can ask a question in such a way that you're going to get a, a one-word response almost every time. If you just say something as simple as, how was school today, I can almost promise you you're going to get the shortest possible answer they can grunt and give you because because they don't want to put themselves out there exposed they're going to give you a very very short if I really want to know what happened in school today much better is to say tell me tell me about your day today what was the high point and the low point of your school today in other words think about asking questions. And not only this is a good skill to teach them. You know I'm amazed like I meet with a small group of guys for discipleship, and, and these are college students. I'm amazed how illiterate they are in conversational skills. Sometimes when I'm talking to a kid, I feel like I'm on one end of a seesaw, and I'm kind of going, huh? <laughs> and, and there's no question from them. There, there's no engagement because, because they don't know. It's, it's, not, it's, not, uh, an, it's not a skill you're born with, right? You know that. You've been at McDonald's. You've stared in the face of a kid who, where it seemed like the light's on, but nobody's home. And, 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 and that's a learned skill. And so, and so teaching that by asking good questions and getting to draw them out by asking good questions, that's really the key. Now, let me just say one other thing about this before I leave this um, particular principle. And that also means the nature of the dialogue with my child will have to be sort of, uh, in, in sort of the type of dialogue one would have with a friend. Um, in, in other words... When I'm trying to build a relationship with a friend, I never say things like, well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard, or, or, or look at me when I'm talking to you. I don't use that kind of language when I'm talking to another human being with whom I want to have a relationship. If I talk to my child that way, it's probably not going to build a very strong relationship. Doesn't mean you have to be their buddy. They've already got buddies. Kids don't need more peers. But what they do need is someone who's willing to listen to them, someone who's willing to take their ideas seriously. And, and that quite often means we have to change the nature of the dialogue we have with our child. Okay, i got to move on here. Uh, let's go to um, catch your teenager in the act of doing something good. There's a typo. Catch your teenager in the act of doing something good. Um, you know how in professional football you've seen this where like the linebacker will just just charge in behind the line, cream the quarterback, totally smother the guy. And then after the play is over, he runs off the field, he takes off his helmet, and the camera zooms in on his face. At least half the time, what they actually say into the camera is, you know what? Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. 
High mom. Like, hi, mom. Did, did you see that act of violence? I harmed someone's child. I, I, I mean, uh, you know, I hurt that guy. You know, and, and, and a mom, you know, and, but, but there's something in us. Uh, there's something in us that doesn't really go away. That you, I don't care if you're a big, burly, grown man. You want mom to think, that's my boy. That's, you know, you want parents to think, that, that, we, we, that's, that's our child. That's our child. You remember when your child was little? Remember how they used to come over to you, just stand in front of you and go, like, hey, are you dumb? This is international symbol for hug me. Uh, you know, and, and, and then somewhere along the way, they stopped doing that. Well, they didn't stop doing that. They just stopped putting their hands like that. They still, they still want to be hugged. You, you see this at youth group. Every kid they come up to, they're going, love me, care about me, think I'm okay. They just have learned you can't put your hands up. You can't be, you can't take that risk. You can't expose your need, but they still feel it. They want mom and dad to approve. Even, even the most hardened kid at the bottom, they, there's still a sense that I really want, I really want them to, to feel good about me. Well, one of the ways we can begin to kind of speak to that and live into that is by intentionally, proactively trying to catch them in the act of doing something good. Here's the tragedy of it all. In adolescent culture today, there are basically five ways that you're going to get affirmation. I call them the straight A's because they all begin with the letter A. If you're a teenager today, more than likely you are only going to get affirmation if one of these five facets is true of you. First of all, if you're good looking, if you're hot. That, that, that's number one. Number two is if you're good in athletics. You're good in sports, you're going to get some affirmation. Number three is academics. If you're good in school, you're going to get some affirmation. Art, performance art, visual art, if you're good in art, you're going to probably get somewhere along the line, you're going to get some adults to take notes. You say, my word, that, that child is really something. Or maybe, maybe among your own peers, you might get affirmation because you have attitude. Because you're bad, because you're hip, because you're cool, whatever it is, your, your attitude. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Look at those five traits up there. Appearance, athletics, academics, art, and attitude. The problem is this. This is how we value human beings in our culture. This is what gives them values. But if you take all five of those, you could be excellent in all five of those categories and be a lousy human being. If we really want to nurture full human beings, if as Christians we want our human being children to grow into the likeness of Christ, which is their destiny, we have to look beyond these five areas of affirmation. And nine times out of ten, when parents actually express affirmation to a teenager, it's for one of these five reasons. Let me just give you some very basic tips on affirmation. Um, First one is look for character traits that you can praise. Look for character traits that you can praise. Um, we've already seen that, that just affirmation on the basis of performance wouldn't necessarily lead us to go, well, this is a good human being. It's just someone who performs well. They're, they're skilled. You could be very, very skilled and be a, a pretty lousy human being. When I say look for character traits, I'm saying look for issues, look for things like integrity or honor or loyalty or kindness or compassion or generosity. So you say, well, 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 okay, but I mean, what do I do? Well, like it might be something like this. Suppose you said, um, let's say your parent, you go, hey, Jill, 
Like, I, I wasn't trying to eavesdrop or anything, and you probably didn't even know this, but when I heard you talking yesterday, to, I think it was Cindy, and, and I don't know who you were talking to for sure, but all I know is whoever you were talking to, apparently they were bad-mouthing uh, one of your friends, and I don't know who it was. All I know is at one point in the conversation, I heard you say this, hey, I love both of you guys, you're both my friends, and this feels like gossip to me. If you need to say something to her, say it to her. Don't say it to me. And I just, I said to your mom, you know what? Our little girl has guts. I mean, I respect that about you. And you know what? She's never going to, that's not going to show up in her college transcript. She's never going to get an award in school for that. She, they don't give awards for that. You don't get ribbons and honors and plaques for that. that that's a character trait. Or you might say, um, Hey, hey, Billy, I, you know what? You made me laugh the other night, and you probably don't remember doing this, but you guys were in the den, and I don't know who it was. I think it was Mitch was late getting here. You guys were all going to go out, and everybody wanted to ditch him because he's late, and you guys are ready to go. And I heard one voice, one voice speak up in the middle of the crowd, ladies, ladies, be patient, be chill. We're not leaving until he gets here. And I just thought, you know what? You are loyal, and loyalty is something we don't have much in our culture today. I respect that about you. Do you understand? So that, that's, that's a character trait that I am of. Or it might be something as simple as, hey, Jimmy, I'm, just, I'm looking at your report card here. You know what? Obviously, you are not cheating. In other, words, in other words, what are some ways that you can affirm that goes deeper than the straight A's? Secondly, praise progress. Praise progress. That, that maybe they haven't gotten all the way to where you want them to be. They haven't fully met your aspirations, but they're making progress in the right direction. Um, you know, uh, th this, is that, this is that thing we talked about a little while ago where you go, look, uh, it's, it's always fun, it's always exhilarating to see big, fast change, but real maturity often takes time. It's not the giant step. In, in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul says, uh, just as you received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And, and it's interesting because Paul uses two metaphors there. He uses um, an, an agricultural metaphor and he uses an architectural metaphor, rooted and built up. But both metaphors point to a long-term process. If something was built overnight, it probably can fall just as fast. And, and so maybe, maybe they're not where they want to be. They're not where you want them to be, but at least they're making a step in the right. Direction. Okay, all right, he did not hang up his towel, but it didn't land on the toilet. That's progress, okay? Affirm that. And thirdly, when you do praise them, don't qualify your praise. This is one of the favorite motivational tools of parents is we'll say things like this to our child, go, oh, that's amazing. You made a B plus on your book report, that's awesome. Just think, though, if you worked a little harder, could have had an A minus. That's not affirmation. That's accusation, right? That's like saying to your wife, you know what, honey, with all the weight you gain, you still smell good. I mean, that, that is not affirmation, right? That, that's, that's putting pepper on a cupcake. If you're going to give them affirmation, give them affirmation. Let them savor it. Let them wallow in it. Don't try to, to, yeah, but that, that's not where I want them to stop. They might become, they might, they might, but I, I guarantee you, if you break their heart, they will become complacent. 
Give them affirmation for every little baby step and then don't qualify your praise. Catch your child in the act of doing something good. Let's talk about another principle. Pick your battles wisely or you'll be battling all the time. Pick your battles wisely or you'll be battling all the time. <clears throat> One thing I learned early on um, as a parent of a teenager is that if you wanted to, you could be ticked off 24 hours a day. Uh, you know, there's almost always something you could be mad about if you really want to be, but nobody wants to live in a family like that. You don't and your child doesn't. So pick carefully the battles you really want to fight. Um, if you always spend your ammunition and always, you know, spend your fire on issues that don't matter, that when you really need to fight for something, you won't have anything left. You, your supply will be depleted. <clears throat> so pick your battles wisely. My, my younger daughter, Katie, came home. She was a freshman in college, came home one night, Friday night, and she had a ring in her eyebrow. Not that big, but, but a ring in her eyebrow. And, um, and it, it looked kind of painful to me. I didn't say anything. Um, I guess I wanted to sort of <laughs> talk to my wife about it and stuff. But this was the first uh, metallic object I'd seen uh, piercing her. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, I was kind of taken aback by it. But I didn't say anything. She went to bed. And it was a short conversation when she got home. You can imagine, oh, boy, Dad, I'm really tired. Good night, Mom. Good night. Gone. And, uh, and, and the next morning, she gets up early, 1130. And comes downstairs, and uh, we're down there, and she says, uh, you know, she said to me, Dad, you didn't say anything about my, about my, my ring. And, um, and I said, well, I said, you know what, it's funny, because Mom and I talked about it last night. I did notice it. I'm going to be honest with you. I said, I think you're beautiful without the ring. Like, I never thought to myself, you know what Katie needs is to, is to have her eyebrows stapled. But I, I, I do, uh, I said, I, I think you're beautiful without it. But, I, but here's what I also think. Kate, you've been, you're such a great daughter. You've made so many great decisions. Um, you could have made a lot worse decisions, right? What I didn't say is, you didn't get pregnant from a, you don't get pregnant from a ring. And, and, and so daddy's pleased. So, you know, but you've made a lot of good choices. If that's the decision you want to make, mom and I, it's your choice. Now you may disagree with that and that's fine. But the point of the matter is you're going to have to figure out which battles you really want to fight because you fight them all. You will probably lose in the long run. If you don't lose the battle, you'll lose your child. And, and so ultimately, the name of the game is I want to maintain that relationship. Now, I did tell her, I said, I'm not happy with your boyfriend. But, but I, I, I think, uh, well, you know what? You're laughing, but this is our youth pastor. Uh, that's why I want you to give these guys a raise. But, but, uh, but when you think about it, I mean, let me just do a little survey here. What, I'll put up some issues on the screen, and you tell me what you think are the issues really worth fighting about, okay? And we'll do sort of a corporate vote, a voice vote. If you think uh, it's worth fighting about, I want to hear a good, hearty, collective amen. Let's try that one time. Amen, right? And, and if you don't think it's a big deal, then you don't have to say anything. I did this at an Episcopal church a few weeks ago. I said, you guys can just say, we'll drink to that. But, but you get the idea, okay? So, so, so I'll put some issues on the screen. You tell me what, what you think, all right? So how about this? Household chores, doing household chores, big deal? 
Okay, all right, good. I respect the fact that you are not a slave to peer pressure. Uh, yes, uh, way to be bold. Okay, how about this? Uh, their bedroom is a mess. Okay, how about language? Amen. Amen, okay. Uh, and, and what I mean by this is that they're bilingual. Uh, okay, how about this? How about piercings? Yeah, okay. Uh, how about grades? <laughs> how about music too loud? No? Nobody? Uh, use of drugs or alcohol? Amen. Uh, you don't have to get mad. Okay, uh, how about this uh, child is Dallas Cowboys fan? No, you know, I think that's something worth fighting about right there. But no, you know, I like the way, um, I like the way James Dobson puts it. By the way, this is what Dobson looked like. That's why he did radio. But, but, uh, but James Dobson, I think, says it well. He says, I've seen parents fight battles over non-essentials such as the purchase of a first bra for a flat-chested premenstrual adolescent girl. For goodness sake, if she wants it that badly, she probably needs it for social reasons. Run, don't walk to the nearest department store and buy her a bra. The objective is to keep your kids on your team. Don't throw away your friendship over behavior that has no moral significance. There'll be plenty of issues that will require you to stand like a rock. Save your big guns for those crucial confrontations. Now, I, I, I think... <laughs> That what happens a lot of times is, is it, it, we get so involved in all these restrictions. Let me, let me tell you what I think. Say yes to your child as often as you can so that when you say no, they will have more respect for it. Say yes to your child as often as you can, and they were more likely to respect the no's that you need to say. Pick your battles wisely or you'll be battling all the time. Um, let's go to another principle. If you want to stay engaged, learn to let go. If you want to stay connected, learn to let go. Um, we already talked about this idea of disengagement. Disengagement. One of the um, most important tasks of adolescence is what psychologists refer to as autonomy, developing autonomy. It comes from two Greek words, meaning I want a car. Not really. But uh, actually, autonomy comes from two Greek words, uh, auto, which means self, and namos, which means rule or law. They want to call their own shots. They want to make their own decisions. And the fact of the matter is, this is a skill they need to learn, isn't it? You're not always going to be there. And so if they don't develop healthy autonomy, you're not going to raise a healthy, capable, self-reliant adult. The problem is, of course, is the, is the process of helping them develop autonomy and learn how to do it wisely over time. They probably are going to want more autonomy before they really uh, should have it. And there's this kind of delicate process. The way I describe it is it's kind of like if you've ever, uh, maybe some of you have been rock climbing or you've seen rock climbing in movies. Um, there, there are different ways to configure the ropes when you go rock climbing. One way, uh, the most common way, is to have a, an experienced uh, climber or a guide uh, sometimes they'll go up first or more likely they'll just take a trail back up the back side of the rock. And then they anchor into a rock or a tree at the very top, tie themselves in there, and then wrap the rope around them and drop the climbing rope down over the face of the cliff. And then the climber actually ties that rope around their midsection. The person at the top of that uh, cliff is the person on belay, B-E-L-A-Y. And their job as the climber makes his or her way up the cliff is to take the slack out of the rope as they climb. 
You do that because that way, if the climber falls, they won't fall very far. There's not much, not much slack in the road. However, uh, not only does that mean you have to be alert to make sure you're taking up slack in the rope, you also have to be alert to leave some slack in the rope, right? Because if there's no slack in the rope, that's not climbing, that's hoisting. And it's painful, and there's no adventure there, and nobody likes that. And, and so the person on belay has a very difficult task. They have to think about how much friction to put on the rope, how much grip, when to relinquish, and when to tighten up so that the climber can actually enjoy the thrill and the fun of climbing, but not be so free that when they fall, they'll fall hard. Now, this is a perfect picture of parenting. It's learning to, that delicate that delicate tension in giving our child freedom, but not too much freedom. And I promise you, if you do it right, there will be tension. There will be tension. It won't always be uh, everybody's happy with the arrangement. But here's what happens is you see parents who often make one of two mistakes. On the one hand, they make the mistake, especially, frankly, uh, more conservative evangelical Christians like ourselves, is we hold the rope too tight. We hold the rope too tight because we know the risks out there. We know the perils out there. Our enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, prowls around to seek and devour our children. And so, and so we grip the heck out of that rope and make sure that nothing's going to happen to them. The problem with that approach, of course, is that you can actually make somebody so safe that you put them at risk. You know, it's like the woman said, I'm not letting my son go near a swimming pool until he learns how to swim. Well, guess what? He can't learn how to swim unless you get near a swimming pool. Yeah, but he might get in over his head. That's how you learn to float. That's how you learn to float. I have seen parents who were so careful to make sure their kids felt no risk that they expose their child to even greater risks because the child never learned to climb, never developed their own autonomy, never learned to think for themselves. And, of course, the greater consequence of that is also this. To the kid goes, you know what? I don't need this. And they just cut the cable. They just cut the rope. So I'm not going to, it hurts. I don't, it's a pain in the neck. And so they cut the rope. But I've also seen parents at the other end of the spectrum that are very laissez-faire, laid back, and you know what? They're busy living their life. They're busy pursuing their career. And they essentially, and frankly, this is not just parents, this is the school system. This is a lot of different people in teenagers' lives. They say, you know what? They're grown up now. Let's treat them like adults, which is code for we don't want to mess with it. This is kind of tiring up here, worrying with the rope. It's hot, and it's not very, they're not very thankful. And, and so you know what they say? I'm just going to let them do their own thing. And when those kids fall, they fall hard. They fall hard. We can't afford to make either of those mistakes. It's, it's, it's got to be this tension. It's got to be this tension. But if we want to stay connected, we're going to have to learn to let go. What that means is that to some extent, your child's adolescence is going to mark the beginning of your own obsolescence. In other words, you're beginning to help them come to a point where they won't need you. Because you won't be there someday. You need them not to fully need you. You want them to love you and to appreciate you and stay connected with you, but they need to be able to climb on their own. Now, that doesn't mean you just drop the rope and walk away. I hope, hope you hear that. But it is saying that I need to recognize there is a process to this. Sometimes people say, well, oh, oh so you're just saying that when my child becomes a teenager, I just let them do anything they want to do. No, I hope you didn't hear that. 
You know, if, if, if my children were out in the street and the trucks come barreling down the street, Maggie says, Duffy, do something. I don't go, hey, they got to learn sometime. You know, uh, you know, and then they get hit. I go, see what daddy was telling you kids? Like, that's not a teachable moment. There are consequences that are so severe that I will say to my child, look, I want you to learn to climb, but I'm not letting you climb here because the consequences of a fall are too severe. And, and, it's, and, and so I'm going to have to grip the rope here. And I'm going to tell you something. If you as a parent are not willing to be misunderstood by a 16-year-old, you're not going to be an effective parent. That's why they have you, is that they don't understand what you understand. They see the little picture. Hopefully, you see the big picture. They need that. They need that perspective. But there is going to be a sense in which, as a parent, you need to learn, I need to learn to graciously let go and relinquish the rope. Uh, in fact, you, you sort of see it over the lifespan that when your child is little, you cater to their every need, every desire, everything they need, you provide it for them. When they move into the elementary school years, then you are still very much uh, in control of their lives. Uh, they, they can maybe exercise little autonomy. They can say, you know, I want to be a, I want to be Superman or I want to be a cowboy or, and I want to be FBI and you say, you know, you can be anything you want until seven, and then you're going to be in bed, and, uh, and you have control over them. It's 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 experimenting, but it's it's experimenting in a very very tight range. As they move into young uh, early adolescence, your role becomes more of coaching because you find that they are around you less. They are less under your control than they once were. When they move to their teenage years, uh, your role becomes a cash dispenser. No, actually, your role becomes more of a consultant. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, once they get their license, they're not under your control. You, you want them to give credence to your counsel. You want them to take seriously your values and stuff. But the fact matters, they are away from you more than they are with you. And so you want to be, your, your role becomes more of a consultant. Hopefully, as a consultant, you will say, well, I, I really want to make sure they listen to my counsel, but I realize that they're now making many of these choices. And as they graduate from high school, uh, then it's really a matter of you caring for them, but they're no longer under your control at all. They are fully adults. And then, of course, if they go to college, uh, then you just go bankrupt. But, but basically, the idea is to, is to recognize that if I'm going to be an effective parent, I have to graciously move through these stages by relinquishing control. Let's, uh, let's look at one more principle here. I'm going to go right to this last one. Break the no-talk rule before it breaks your family. Break the no-talk rule before it breaks your family. There are a lot of things that are hard to talk about with our children, but there's probably nothing more difficult to talk about than sex. And it's difficult for two reasons at least. Number one is um, we, they don't want to think we know anything about sex, right? That's just gross. And, and, and number two is uh, we don't really want to think they're interested in sex because that's frightening. That's scary. And so what you end up having is two people who really, really need to have a conversation, but who have somehow um, unconsciously uh, committed themselves to this covenant of, of silence. And, and so the conversation that really needs to happen never actually happens. Uh, and so as a parent, I've got to recognize that I need to be engaged in my life in, in this area of sexuality, especially 
especially in this day and age when there's such mush and confusion in our culture about sexuality. Now, let me give you some very simple tips in doing something that's very, very difficult. First of all, tips in talking about sex. Start early. Start early. I suggest wake them up tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. Now, when I say start early, I mean you're going to have to start this conversation earlier with your child than you wish you did. You know, it would be great. It would be great, wouldn't it, if we lived in a culture where there, there weren't these images everywhere, but the images are everywhere. The messages are everywhere. You heard about the two kids walking down the street. One of them said to his buddy, I found a condom on the patio. And his friend goes, ah, what's a patio? I mean, they, they've seen it all. They've heard it all. Uh, my daughter works as a volunteer at the youth group at her church. She was telling me last week that she, this little eighth grade girl asked her to mentor her. And so Aaron met with her. And the very first session, this little eighth grade girl told Aaron that she'd already had sex twice. Her parents didn't know anything about it. Now, Aaron said, well, you're going to have to talk with your parents about it. And, 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 and they, but the parents said, we had no idea. We, we didn't know. We had no idea. And, and, and I find that a lot of parents go, well, I, I, you know what, I think, I, I'm sure that's a problem with some kids, but it's not an issue with my child. Because we don't want to think it's an issue with our child. It's an issue with your child. The exposure is real, and it's out there. I can't remember the exact numbers, but a huge number of kids by the age of 12 or 11 have already been exposed to pornography. We need to start earlier. I get it, wanting to protect their innocence. I have two daughters, right? I'm, I'm still a little bit upset that Aaron has children because it makes me think Peter might have had sex with her. I mean, I know he probably didn't, but, but it still bugs me a little bit. I get that. But here's the problem. If you aren't talking with your child about sex, you're the only one who isn't. Don't you want to be a part of that conversation? You know, don't, don't you want to have a seat at that table? Start early. Start early. Of course it's going to be appropriate, age appropriate, but, but start early. Second, remember it takes more than the talk. More than the talk. And I'm talking here primarily to dads and primarily to dads of sons. Because, because if you have a daughter... If you have a daughter, when she has her first period, that there's sort of a natural entree into a conversation about sexuality, at least to some extent. But if you, if you have a son and you're waiting for them to kind of bounce into the kitchen one morning and say, you're not going to believe we had a wet dream last night, you're going to wait a long, long time for that conversation to happen. So what you're going to have to do dad is initiate that conversation and we don't like talking about that stuff we don't want to do that and so we put it off we put it off and we put it off and finally you know somebody said get in there and talk with him he's been married 10 years he, I, I know i know i know i was gonna do it i was just waiting until he got a little older and and uh maybe 15 years and 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 then we do it and then when we do have the talk it's this huge big freighted, serious thing that everything is riding on. And so you come in there and it's like, okay, son, uh, sit down, sit down. We just, man to man, we're going to talk. Um, do you remember last summer at Uncle Billy's farm? Remember the two horses? Forget that. Uh, uh, okay. You know what? Um, <clears throat> there is a bat and there's a glove. Forget that. That's ridiculous. Look, here's the thing. Uh, okay? 
<laughs> if you have any other questions, talk to me. And, and then we're done. And that's kind of the way we do it, you know. And, and, but you know what? That's not enough. It, it, it's got to be an ongoing conversation. There, there has to be a sense in which we're willing to sort of, and, 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 and watching for teachable moments because this is a huge part of their life every day. Now, I have to caution you because when you're a parent of a teenager, I get it. You're temporarily insane. And part of what happens is when you're, you know, when you are a parent of a teenager, every conversation seems like a teachable moment, right? Like I literally had a dad say to me, he said, I don't know what happened. I used to be able to talk to my son, but now everything is like so serious. He, my son asked me, you know, Dad, when did they first start paving roads? He said it was all I could do to keep him saying, well, you know, son, the road to hell is paved good intention. You know, I mean, like, you can't even have a conversation anymore. So, so every conversation is not a teachable moment. But be alert to those moments that could be used and then be informed. Be informed. You should at least know these two things. You should know about sexually transmitted diseases and you should at least know what your child is being taught at school about sexuality. The most intimate, most important part of their life and one of the most important parts of your life, you need to know that. One of the, I'm really proud of Maggie because when our girls went into middle school in the public school system, Maggie got on the committee that was developing the sex ed curriculum. She wanted to be a part of that discussion. And, 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 and that doesn't mean you have to do that, but we surely need to be engaged in all of that. We have to break that no talk rule before it breaks our family. We have four minutes left. Let me do this. In closing, um, I think one of the most important things I could say to you this afternoon is this. Something is better than nothing. When you come to a seminar, I don't know about you, when I come to seminars like this, I get discouraged. Like the more I hear the guy talk, the more I go, oh my gosh, we're, oh no, we are lousy parents, we're screwing that up, we're doing that badly. And then I really, on the way home, I'm going, honey, you know what, if we love the kids, we really need to put them up for adoption. And, uh, you know, you just feel like a total jerk. I hope you're not walking out of here today discouraged. But here's what I want to say. Don't feel like you have to do everything you've heard today. You know, something is better than nothing. In fact, I would even say one of the worst mistakes you could make is to try to do everything you've heard today. Like you go home and say, okay, guys, we're going to be talking about autonomy. We're going to be talking about uh, different types of authority and, uh, and, and back rubs and sex. Come on down. Uh, you know what they're going to say? They're going to go, you went to a seminar, didn't you? And, 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 and you don't try to do everything. Pick one thing you can do. Don't worry about all the stuff you can't do. See, that's not going to fly in my household. That's not going to go with my kid. Fine. Don't worry about that. Think of the one thing you can do and do that. Start there because something is always better than nothing. The last thing I want to say is this. Um, I, I don't know any of you really, and I don't know your background or your story or your connection to the church, but, but here's what I've discovered myself as a dad is that I am incapable I am incapable of being the kind of father I want to be for my kids. I don't have it in me to be gracious enough, merciful enough, loving enough, patient enough. I, I have a hard time waiting for this thing called maturity to happen. I am convinced that the only way we can be the sort of parents that God calls us to be is to draw on the resource of his son, Jesus. 
that that, that, that reservoir uh, is the only hope we have to be the kind of parents we're called to be. That, 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 and Jesus, in a sense, said the same thing. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, look, he says, um, seek first. Seek first the kingdom. And all this other stuff will be added to you. And what that means in the nutshell is that me and you, our first responsibility is not to be a mom or a dad or a grandmother or a grandfather. Our first responsibility is to focus on being a faithful child of the Father in heaven, child of God. Seek that, and then these other things will be added. Thank you for your patience this afternoon. Can I just tell you, we got a couple of books back there. They're going to open up for a couple of minutes while I pack up all the gear. Uh, most of the books I, I have uh, are youth ministry books, but I brought a couple of books for parents and or that parents could, might be interested in. The first one is this book, There's a Teenager in My House. It's nothing but question and answer. Um, I've got to leave here immediately to go to the next place. And you might go, but yeah, but I want to ask about that. Well, that's kind of what this book will help you do. It's just all kinds of questions, a hundred I think 101 different questions. Me and some other guys who do seminars like this, we got together, uh, and then one of our buddies, Wayne Rice, edited all these questions. We said, oh, here's what we get asked. Let's put together some answers, some responses. And so it's stuff like, how should I respond when my daughter is disrespectful? When is it appropriate for teenagers to start dating? What do I do when my son refuses to go to church? Is my son's anger normal? Is it appropriate for him to set the car on fire? And, uh, and, and, so, and it's broken up by category, topic, uh, emotions, family, home life, church, sexuality, and so forth. We have some of these back there. The other book I brought is a book for teenagers called Going the Distance. It's, uh, people say, well, how do you write a book for kids? Uh, the only thing they want to read is stuff that mentions a wizard. And, uh, and, it, and you do have to be thoughtful about it. Um, you have to be intentional about giving them a reason to turn the next page. But uh, this book is based on Philippians 3, uh, how to live your faith in the long run. Uh, there are a lot of topics here from how to handle tough times, how do you spend time with God, pressing on under pressure, uh, dealing with your parents without becoming homicidal. One of my favorite parts of this book is the very beginning. And I always read this little section because it sort of, it sort of is my response to how do you get a kid to turn the page. This is a challenge I faced on page one of the book. I'm going through Philippians uh, 3 to sort of introduce them to the theme passage in the book. And if you remember in Philippians 3, Paul says, uh, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for as we who are the circumcision. And then in brackets, it says, author's note, if you don't understand what circumcision is, see the diagram on the next page. Uh, and then it says, uh, we were only kidding about that circumcision diagram. Didn't mean to scare you. Seriously, if you don't know what circumcision is, try this. Go to your telephone right now, call your pastor, and ask him. This is a great way to start a conversation with your pastor and a fun way to meet people on your church staff. For extra credit, have your sister make the call. For extra, extra credit, have your mom make the call. For extra, extra, extra credit, Draw a diagram based on your conversation with a pastor and share it in Sunday school next week. And so uh, this is, uh, we have some of these back there going the distance. You can use credit card, cash, or check. Thank you again. You've been very gracious. Listen to me so much today. God bless you guys. Thanks again, Denny. Thanks, gentlemen, for letting me be a part of this ministry. Take care.